and welcome to CNBC's continued coverage of markets and turmoil, everybody. Thank you very much for watching. Well, it was a down end to what was a miserable month and a miserable quarter, all in all, in so many different ways. The Dow closing the day down 410 points, ending its worst first quarter ever and its worst month since all the way back in 2008. Listen to some of these statistics. In March, the Dow Jones Industrial Average finishing down 13.7%. There were three drops of 2,000 points or more. Overall, the index traded in a nearly 9,000-point range, and half of the Dow 30 lost more than 10% or more of their value for investors, all within a 31-day month where so much changed in the markets and really so much changed in the world. Also, you know what changed? The price of oil. Oil falling 67%. So far this year, a number of oil stocks have lost 90% of their value in 2020. All, of course, because of demand destruction and a price war and a global economy on edge because of what else? The coronavirus, COVID-19. And when the White House press conference begins, we will take you to any major market moving headlines or headlines concerning your health that you need to know from that press conference when it begins. Now, basically a daily occurrence at 5 p.m. Eastern time. So welcome, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. I know that was a tough start, but we have got a great investment team for you tonight. Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinemann, and from Strategus, we have got Chris Verone. Welcome, everybody, on another tough day for the markets and the world. Guy Adami, obviously, let's do what we do here, and that is focus on investments and give some sound advice. The VIX fell today, but it's still at 53. Volume was down, although still elevated from a month ago. But all in all, I think you might agree, another reasonably orderly day for the equity markets. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned orderly. And, and again, great to see you, Brian, and everybody else. Orderly is a good word. I think you can't underestimate how important it is to get back to some semblance of normalcy in the markets. And listen, I get it. The VIX at 53 is still an absurd number, especially when you look at it in the context of what we were talking about three or four months ago. But that's off, obviously, the recent highs, and it moved lower today despite the broader market moving lower as well. That's encouraging. I don't want to be Pollyannish here. I get it. The market's down. But I took some good things away from today. That and the fact that there continues to be some semblance of normalcy again in the bond market. So those things are encouraging the S&P and the Dow notwithstanding today. Tim Seymour, did you find anything or maybe the same or yes, different Brian. encouraging about this market today? Well, I mean, at, at midday, we, we did our production calls. We do. And we were all looking around and seeing the S&P up 33 basis points and saying, wow, this is like a lovely July day. Um, I, you know, what, what the takeaways are, uh, markets certainly have priced in. If, if you're the bull, you say that risk markets have, have repriced based upon the coronavirus, uh, that we have an enormous stimulus package. We have a central bank that's buying everything that moves. And, and this is a case where pessimism um, got to that point where there was extreme. Um, bears are going to rightly point out that we have no idea what the economic uh, data impact is going to be and that we know the data this week is going to be poor. We know we got some terrible PMI numbers. Um, but at some point, these are the moments um, when data bottoms, and I'm not saying that we have, is when you want to be buying equities even though uh, the world doesn't seem to be a great place. I think that's where we are wrestling right now, and I would continue to say, Brian, that I think we got to peak pessimism already, um, and, and I think that's something that is generally good for the markets when you have this wall of worry. 
I'll tell you what, Tim, I wish you were right. I wish it was an average July day. That sounds pretty good right now. Uh, Karen Feinerman, it's great to, quote, see you, even though I can't see you, but our audience certainly can. I mean, you, you look at this market, Goldman Sachs coming out with a second quarter GDP estimate for a contraction of 34%. I mean, I think Tim used the term cartoonish with some of these numbers yesterday. As a fund manager, do you pay any attention to this data, Karen? Well, I mean, that's a pretty unbelievable headline. I think that's an eight and change percent, eight and a half percent quarterly GDP contraction and then annualized. But I mean, either way you slice it, even a quarter of it's still a horrific number. I think uh, that is possible. I I mean, who knows? Who knows what kind of contraction we're going to see? But I've been pleasantly surprised both Tim and Guy talked about a little return to some normalcy. I mean, this was just sort of your run-of-the-mill down 400 and change day, which actually didn't feel bad at all um, relative to some of the other days we've had. The credit markets opening and functioning, that's really important. I mean, the idea that today Carnival Cruise talked about doing a debt deal, a junk deal, and um, a convert and equity, that, that's astounding to me that they would consider that. So, I mean, 10 days ago, that would have been absolutely a complete non-starter. Now, I don't know if they get it done. We'll see. But just the idea of, of that is sort of amazing. Maybe they don't have any choice. They've got to do it no matter what. But it's good to see the debt, the debt markets functioning. To me, that's more important, actually, than the equity markets functioning. So I feel a little bit You know, Chris, I was trying to, that, I was trying to play my best. 34. Chris Verone earlier today, I was looking at some technical analysis and I, and I looked at a, a longer term chart of the S&P and I saw that we pretty much bounced exactly off that RSI, that relative strength indicator, you know, a couple of days ago. And I wonder when you look at this market, we knew for a while during that, I mean, during the absolute darkest days for the market of a couple of days ago, technicals seem to be mostly out the window. Has a sense of orderliness also returned to the patterns, the charts, the things that you look at? Yeah, Brian, I think it has. And listen, I know that we don't know here. We're all playing in the dark. But when we put this into some type of historical context, and I think as Tim talks about as well, you were in the historic, historic oversold camp. The number of stocks making new lows about two weeks ago was as bad as we've seen since 2008, uh, worse than we saw at 87, worse than we saw at the 62 low. So to put this into some type, just to put this into some type of context, you have to go back to those data points and say, okay, how did market respond from here in the past? And what we see historically is the returns over the next number of weeks, or even over the next couple of months, can be very, very random. But looking out six and 12 months in the future, they tend to be very, very, very strong. I think it's notable that under the surface, even on a day like right now where we had S&P lower, risk was actually not bad. High beta better than low beta, semis were better than software, and breadth was not bad. You had just as many stocks up as you had down. So I think the internals are starting to thaw. We've seen that in corporate credit. We've seen it with the VIX. We've seen it with put call ratios. Those are some helpful signs under the surface. Yeah. You know, Guy Dami, I don't know. I don't want to get personal. I don't know about you, but I can tell you this much. When, when we do our 815 <laughs> company-wide call, the moment I get off it, I get on Johns Hopkins. I get on NewJersey.com. I start to look at uh, case totals from around the world, from the United States, from, from New Jersey, from my county in New Jersey, uh, obviously looking for some signs of hope. Is that the primary data point 
that we've talked about before that will ultimately move equities. When those numbers, as bad as they are, start to roll over and go down, we're talking about humanity, are those the key data points rather than the Goldman Sachs GDP number? Yeah, I mean, Goldman Sachs GDP number, I mean, anybody can throw a number out there, I get it. I understand that to Karen's point. There's no way of knowing what has come out. I think your point is exactly right. And that's actually what sort of scares me a little bit, because everything you read or hear or watch on television indicates that, you know, we're probably still seven to 10 days away from this thing at its worst, which is really somewhat disconcerting. So I am hoping somehow that the market has discounted it. But, you know, I think when if we were to see those numbers escalate and if we were to see the things that they're warning us against, that could be somewhat disconcerting. Now, I'll say again, it is good that we're getting back to some level of normalcy here. Uh, I'm not saying we're going to retest the lows. I have no idea. I do think there's a chance, and I think Chris Verone would probably accept this as well, that we do a 50% retracement and maybe trade up to that 2790 level, which makes sense. But, you know, with that said, to your question, I think that's the overriding factor right here for everybody. Yeah, Tim, would you agree with that? Well, I, I would. I, I do think we have some data points. Uh, remember when we first started actually kind of turning a blind eye to what was going on, and I mean markets. Uh, we're turning a blind eye to what was going on in Asia, certainly in China. Um, we, we got some sense that this was going to be uh, a moment. And even for investing in, in, in emerging markets and Asian securities, it was a sense that we'd seen this before with SARS and that two to three months out, certainly nine to 12 months out, this was something you had to have been buying as an equity investor. Uh, obviously, uh, the entire world changed in terms of the magnitude here. But hey, China's back. China was three months ahead of us in terms of, uh, of the impact. And I'm not saying that looking at China macro is something that should necessarily parlay into the U.S. economy. But last night, China released uh, PMI, manufacturing numbers and service numbers, which were in expansion territory, 52.3 on manufacturing, 52.0 uh, on services. And, and these are numbers that were drastically better. And, and I realize that, again, off of what base yeah. and off of what comparison. But, but that's the good news. The good news is that China's uh, second quarter GDP, we talked about U.S., is going to be down 1% in the second quarter. Um, so the duration, and this is back to your question of how long uh, before we get to uh, essentially inflection points in this country, uh, is somewhat determinant on how bad the economic impact is going to be. But we have data points of companies and countries that are further along in the process than we are. Yeah, South Korea, China, great points. I, I want to get to our guest in a second, but Chris Brown, we've got headlines crossing right now on CNBC.com from Jeff Gunlock, obviously known as a bond fund manager, but a guy who will wade into anything. And Chris, uh, Jeff saying that the coronavirus sell-off is going to worsen again next month in April, taking out the March low. So Gunlock, and that's I got one headline for you. Gunlock, obviously bearish on equities, thinks we're going to make a new low. Agree or disagree? I disagree. And listen, I know that we don't know here, but what's important is this market deteriorated before anyone figured out how bad this virus was. So I would apply the same logic on the other side, that this market will begin to heal itself before anyone can believe that the virus data will get better. And we'll look to corporate credit markets, we'll look to dollar funding markets for some evidence of that. And I think that's where the Fed has been pretty effective over the last two weeks. We have returned to some normalcy in the macro world. And I think the most consensus word out there is retest. Everyone's talking about a retest. They're only retests in hindsight. 
Okay, let's bring in our guest. That is John Stolfus. He is uh, Oppenheimer's Asset Management Chief Investment Strategist. John, welcome. Um, look forward to having Thanks, everybody, Brian. by the way, back on set like the normal Fast Money with Melissa and the whole gang. Uh, that day will come, by the way, I promise. Uh, but let's talk about right now. And you, you heard me mention the headlines from Jeff Gunlock. Do you believe that we will make a new low for the overall stock market next month? I, I don't believe we will. I think that uh, we, we've likely put in the low or we may put in put put in the low. Uh, there, there could be enough. It really depends upon the uh, on the quality of the news flow related to the virus. We're held hostage yeah. by the virus. But right now, based on what we've seen, we're actually seeing improvements in that now uh, the response to the virus, the response uh, to the economy and the markets, all of this is beginning to flow forward. Initially, it was, it was uh, you know, the response was, it was like the Three Stooges, for those who remember. It was like, you know, uh, what, what, <laughs> or, or Abbott and Costello, who's on first, you know, a lot of mayhem. But what, what we've got right now is we're beginning to get it together, whether it's Ford and GM or, or, or Brooks Brothers making masks and, and, and uh, uh, ventilators and, and other types of equipment. This is we're beginning to come together. There's a there's a moment here that appears like Rosie the Riveter. We're getting it together. You yeah. know, the U.S. The historically, well, John, I, listen, known, you can't you can't see my house. I've got a picture of the Le Mans Ford versus Ferrari car. I've had that for years, by the way. And there's a scene in the movie where he says, you know, we defeated Germany. We won the war by building these bomber planes. And I and I, you know, we're putting the might of the private and public sector together. I get that. We're going to get through this. The United States will overcome it. Somebody will come up with a vaccine. J&J, Regeneron, somebody, or multiple vaccines will do it. So that's good. But let's step back to where we are right now, which is a lot of people who have sold their their investments. We know that from the data. Hundreds of billions have gone into money market funds. Mm -hmm. Should that money be put back to work in the U.S. equity markets right now? And if so, where? Okay, we'd have to say this. First of all, anybody is, is putting money back into the market. They got to know themselves. So essentially, they have to right size expectations, be realistic that whatever they buy could fluctuate significantly. They need to have a sense of. They need to practice diversification. They need to look for babies that have gotten thrown out with the bathwater. Those stocks that have good business premise, good management that have the capability to uh, to, uh, to travel in rough waters. And initial... It, like it, who? It, who is that, John? Who is that? Oh, uh, you know, I've got to give you sectors in this because I, 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 I'm limited to what I can say by compliance. So what we can tell you is we want technology, we want industrials, and we want consumer discretionary as the three main plays here. We want to be cyclicals instead of defensives in terms of sectors. You saw the youths getting... Hit today, uh, uh, REITs are beginning to have a tough time. They were very popular in in in, uh, in an overbid of defensive is what we, uh, 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 sectors we would say. But we want a position for coming out of this, even though it, it's early. Now that said, people have got to understand themselves and know what their risk tolerance is. They've got because if they don't have risk tolerance, they probably should stay on the outside. But we would have thought most people should not have sold their equities, if they were properly diversified, they should have held and ridden or take, gone through the course of this. Uh, when you hold on to your, what you have, the reality is the, usually in the upswing, when you come out of these things, when you pivot and you start moving upward, 
usually your gains that you have from the the lows happen in a very very short period of time and yeah. if people were so worried that they sold out I mean, the problem is when when the market starts picking up they're going to miss it to the upside that's what usually happens so John, you, you gotta you, yeah you gotta have confidence you have to have you have to have uh, uh, confidence in your convictions but fear and panic are hard to overcome, and that's exactly what we had, I think, about a week ago. John Stolfus of Oppenheimer, like the optimism. Thank you very much for joining us, John. Look forward to having you back on set soon. Karen Feinerman, uh, consumer discretionary. I heard that. I kind of thought, all right, guess what? There might be a lot of companies that don't make it through this in terms of being an equity, if you know what I mean. Were there any consumer discretionary names that you've been buying over the last couple of days? Uh, well, one, I tried to buy a couple. Starbucks I did buy. I think that they will come out of it. I mean, we have their roadmap from seeing what happened in China and how they're coming out of it there. And so I think that's one that um, I don't think we're going to get another chance. Maybe we will. I don't know. If we do get another chance to buy it in the 50s, I will buy it in the 50s. I'd probably buy it a little higher as well. So that's one. Home Depot is one that I missed, um, but I, I think we might get another chance there. But I, don't, I know that I am not going to be able to pick the bottom. So I'll, I'll buy even if it's not, you know, if it's not at the bargain, the lowest price ever. Once you see that lowest price, you feel like, oh, I'm going to wait for it to get back there again. Sometimes it never gets back there. So even right here, I, I still like a Starbucks. Um, so that's one. And there's only just a, I, I mean, Target is sort of consumer discretionary, but sort of also, you know, a grocery play. And. That's another one that I like. Um, so those are the, I mean, there are good companies out there. We always talk about, okay, the balance sheets. That's where you want to be, the ones with the good balance sheets. And something like a Starbucks, right in the heart of consumer discretionary. I am concerned, though, for the broader retailers. Yeah, as are a lot of people, Karen Feynman, Karen, they, we always forget there is always a buyer. You can't have a trade unless there's a seller and a buyer. It all just depends on what price. All right, guys. We have got a lot more coming up in this hour of CNBC. The president saying maybe we need to put a couple more trillion at the problem, specifically with infrastructure. Some of those stocks rocketed today. We'll tell you more about those. Plus, the airlines. Interesting note on airlines getting grants. What about CEO pay and airline dilution? Tim Seymour will give you his views on that, along with an analyst. And as a reminder, the White House nightly coronavirus press conference has not begun. When it does... You may dip in, bring any relevant headlines. We're back on CNBC with more right after this. All right, welcome back to CNBC, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Hope you're having as good of a day as you possibly can be anywhere in the world or the country that you are watching. Thanks for joining us. Well, we have a couple trillion dollars, the Federal Reserve. We've got the president and Congress doing a $2 trillion stimulus plan, but the president doesn't believe that may be enough. In fact, today, the president tweeting out that he thinks that we need to get a $2 trillion infrastructure program going as well. Of course, the president, Christopher Rohn, has been hot on infrastructure for a long time. All those infrastructure weeks, nothing occurred. However, the market parts of it did react. Summit materials, some of the gravel makers, asphalt makers, they soared today. Are you a buyer or a recommender of some of these names? Yeah, I think these stocks are interesting, and they've actually started to outperform a little bit as well. So not just going up in absolute terms, but outperforming uh, as well. A name we've watched is Jacobs, ticker J, which actually is still above the 2018 lows. So the longer-term trend there 
is still intact. And I think it's important that these stocks or this group is not at the scene of the accident here. And, you know, that's our big problem when we think about discretionary or even airlines. Historically, the groups in the sectors that are at the scene of the accident, whether it was real estate in 1991 or tech in 01 or banks in 08, they never returned as secular leaders when the cycle got better. So I think when you look at these infrastructure stocks, they aren't at the scene of the crime here. I think that puts them in a good spot for leadership coming out of this. Guy Adami, any of the infrastructure names sort of wet your whistle? Yeah, Martin Marietta, it comes out MLM. If you look where it recently traded down to on whatever that date in Mar this March was, it traded down and basically held levels we saw in, back in 2016. And Vulcan Materials is another one, VMC, that traded down to Chris's point about the other stock, you know, levels we saw in 2018. But again, these stocks aren't necessarily cheap, not that any of that matters right now. And the pushback I would have, and I think the question that has to be asked is, you know, I want to win Lotto tomorrow as well. But you know, where, where's this money coming from that the president magically wants to do this infrastructure spend with? You know, we're pulling a lot of things out of thin air right now for good reason, and I understand it. But you can't just continue to go down this rabbit hole, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. It's MMT, baby. It's here. What we talked about, modern monetary theory, Tim Seymour. What we've talked about and what some people ridiculed for, I mean, in, in dire circumstances <laughs> is here that said infrastructure stocks i mean oil's gone down that's a big spender well, do you think we'll get a deal we've had a lot of head fakes here i look i, I think there's going to be another round and, and i think you know we've heard this and i think there's political consensus a uh, guy brings up some uh some important issues and how we're going to spend how we're going to pay for this um but 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 again uh, you know my my view though is if you look at say a masco um, makes asphalt and building supplies um, was, as Chris pointed out, uh, one of the real uh, kind of you know proxy plays problem children uh, down 45 percent, but has rallied back uh, almost 30 percent in five or six sessions. Uh, my my problem here is is that while I think we are actually seeing, first of all, we're seeing a steeper yield curve. We're seeing slightly higher implied inflation expectations, um, and, and you know, arguably, this is what's supposed to happen when you put rates to zero. But but we've seen is you know, I think the jury's really still out that that, that that's what's going to happen. Um, if anything, um, yes, I get the fact that an inflation, excuse me, a, a some type of an infrastructure package brings uh, some relief to companies that that largely have been trading at, at, at you know they've been cheap and they're getting cheaper. Frankly, uh, guy points out I don't think they're terribly cheap even here. Um, I don't think buying infrastructure in the face of this is where you're going to get relief. I think um, anything that we do is going to be just that. It's going to be stimulus. But um, look, we're we're questioning global growth right now. That is not going to return overnight. This will be a a sector to invest in, um, but I'm not chasing infrastructure here on that headline. Yeah, yeah I think, Karen, and I'm, I'm speculating, obviously, there's going to, we know there's going to be a lot of people unemployed and perhaps part of the infrastructure idea is it could be a good way to get people back to work if housing drops off. I don't know. On the infrastructure side, anything that you would invest around or buy around some of this really extraordinary government spending? Well, the infrastructure, the, I, I actually think there's a reasonable chance of it happening, more so now than in a really long time. I mean, I, I own United Rentals, which will definitely benefit. And stock was up a fair amount today after obviously having a terrible run. I think that would be great for them. But the thing about an infrastructure spend is you do actually have something concrete, literally, 
at the end of it. And as you said, pointed out that you're putting people to work as well. So I know we need all of this stimulus and I know we need to absolutely put some net under people who are unemployed and, and, and for companies to be able to make payroll. But I think doing an infrastructure spend, you actually end up with something tangible. And so I don't know if they could get it done, but it's not, it, it should be on the table. All right. Good discussion there. We'll see if the president gets what he wants. Another couple trillion in infrastructure. We'll see. All right, coming up, oil. We're going to talk about it. It held up a little bit today, but what happens when and if all the storage runs out? Well, guess what? We've got a guest who says they're putting it on ships. He'll talk about where we stand there. And again, waiting on the White House press briefing as well, plus the very latest on your coronavirus numbers. Update, a lot more to do here on CNBC. And we are back with more right after this. All right, welcome back to CNBC's continued coverage of markets and turmoil. If you're just joining us, welcome, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. A tough end to a tough month to a tough year. The Dow falling 410 points today for the worst first quarter ever for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. All right, well, the White House about ready to hold its nightly press conference on the coronavirus. The White House press briefing, of course. Any key headlines come out of there, market moving or otherwise, we are going to bring those to you. But we have a little bit of good news on that front as well. And who else is going to deliver that but Meg Terrell. And uh, Meg joining us right now. And Meg, I know how how tough it is being physical distancing, social distancing, whatever you want to call it, how hard that is for so many people in the United States and the world. But you've got some data that shows that as tough as it is, it does appear to be working on many fronts. Yes, Brian, it does appear to be working. And that gentleman you just showed uh, waiting for the briefing to start, that was Dr. Anthony Fauci. And he said today he is seeing glimmers of where this is working. Now, two of those cities and counties we'll show you are Seattle and San Francisco. This is where it appears that social distancing really is starting to flatten the curve. Seattle, King County's case is around 2,300. San Francisco is under 400 there. And those curves really are uh, looking like they're flat. In San Francisco, hospitals reporting that they are seeing sort of a leveling off of cases. Uh, in Seattle, two studies showing that they decreased mobility and the transmission of the virus declined as well. Now, here in New York, Governor Cuomo saying today the state could see its peak in 7 to 21 days. So we're looking one to three weeks still toward potentially getting to that peak. And we saw a pretty big daily increase in cases here in New York today at 14%. Now, finally, some hot spots we want to point out for you that could start to rise. Scott Gottlieb saying we should be looking at Florida. So Miami, Dade County, that one is really starting to pick up, approaching 2,000 cases there. Cook County, Illinois, of course, where Chicago is, uh, 3,700 cases. Detroit also one to watch with more than 3,100 cases. But we also want to show you a really interesting map here. This is a map of fevers across the United States and their decline over the last week. This is from a company called Kinsa Health. And essentially what they see is that the social distancing, it's working. Fevers are lower. The dark blue areas show you where that is the most pronounced. They say there's a couple weeks lag on when the fever data starts to turn into the actual case number data for COVID-19. But Brian, when we're looking for optimism, that map gives it to us that social distancing really could start to be having an impact. And we'll expect to hear more uh, from the briefing tonight. Yeah, we certainly will. Meg Terrell, bring a little bit of good news for us. Meg, we do appreciate that. Thank you very much. And as Meg said, that we are monitoring that White House press briefing. Again, any major headlines that cross from it, we will bring those to you. We're going to take a short break. 
And we're back with more on CNBC right after this. All right, welcome back to CNBC. Well, as bad as pretty much so many things were in the first quarter, it wasn't as bad for anything as it was for oil. The price of oil down 67%. You got two things going on, of course. You've got a market share price war between the Saudis and the Russians. And now the U.S., after its own companies, Exxon and the bigger ones, against the smaller ones, according to Scott Sheffield, a pioneer. But you've also got global demand disruption, maybe 13 to 20 million barrels a day being taken offline. Oil at 20 bucks. The problem is, what happens when oil storage runs out and it is starting to fill up? Let's talk more about this side of the story and bring in Clay Siegel with Vortexa. They specialize in offshore storing oil on ships. So Clay joining us now. Clay, it's a pleasure to have you on. The fact that so many ship owners or oil owners are willing to pay ships high rates because rates have gone up to store oil offshore says a lot. Where do we stand in oil storage right now? Yep. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. Um, We think that there's about a half billion barrels of available capacity on tankers worldwide. Is that a lot? I mean, that holds about the same amount of oil that we had in onshore commercial inventories at their highest point a couple of years ago. So it is a lot. The question is, what does that buy us in terms of a buffer to balance this very skewed physical market that we're seeing today? Yeah, well, the stuff I'm reading onshore suggests we're probably anywhere from 30 to 60 days, roughly, between pretty much filling up every tank, every pipe, every bathtub in the United States. But when oil is in contango, fancy word meaning prices are expected to rise, it pays to pay these ship owners. When or if does that turn around, Clay? At what point does it become uneconomical even to store oil on a giant super tanker and let it sit at anchor somewhere in a harbor? Part, part of it is the arbitrage that you described, and part of it is the fact that the supply chain all around the world is just backing up and seizing up. So it really, I mean, the time scale that you're asking about depends on the size of that surplus and whether the, the freight and the futures markets can keep up with the physical market. So we've done some calculations. By the time floating storage really begins to fill, we think it would take about seven to nine continuous weeks to fill. So in theory, by early June, maybe late May, you could fill that half billion barrels of floating storage capacity. In real market conditions, it probably won't play out exactly like that because it won't be continuous. So remember, it largely depends on that differential between the, that time spread in the futures market, the contango, and the cost yeah. of carry. Sometimes that arb will be open, but then when freight rates increase, it'll close. So instead of a straight kind of slope up for floating storage, think more like a, a stair step or a zigzag higher. Yeah. Well, they have, you know, they have, we had, a, we had a guest on about, I don't know, um, <laughs> days are fading into each other, Clay, maybe four to six weeks ago called Randy Givens of Jeffries. He recommended a number of oil tanker stocks. Most of them are well up. And this was before, of course, coronavirus really broke out because their freight rates were up for a lot of different reasons we don't need to get into now. The tanker rates have soared and the tanker stocks have done well. How much more price increases do you think the market can bear? There is room for freight to go higher, certainly. And that's our kind of our baseline expectation for what we're going to see this spring. And keep in mind, too, it's, it's not only the super tankers that are associated with crude floating storage. We're seeing some really unusual patterns 
in those cargoes of refined products. So last week, just as an example, we started seeing gasoline cargoes that had been heading for the United States switch direction mid-ocean and head for storage locations in, in the Caribbean, Singapore, Amsterdam. It's expensive to pull a 180 like that mid-ocean. So when we see moves like that, we think the market conditions have deteriorated so much at the original destination that it's basically worth it to reroute them into the international storage. So, and then another really interesting to watch is jet fuel cargoes because we've seen barrels yeah. that were supposed to go from the Middle East and India to ports in Europe. They're getting moved around. They're getting sent into storage in places like the Caribbean. And what's really interesting, Brian, is that they're taking the long way. Okay, instead of cutting straight through the Suez Canal, they're sailing all the way around Africa to deliberately postpone their arrival. That's actually a version of the floating storage play, right? It's amazing. I mean, the arbitrage, what they're doing, and you can you can watch it on Tanker Tracker. Some of these names are like, why are they doing that and going here? A fascinating side of the story we don't talk about a lot. Clay Siegel of Vortexa Clay. Great stuff. Keep us informed. Thank you very much. All right. Well, we just talked about jet fuel. So why don't we talk about actual jets? Tim flagging a note from Hunter K of Wolf Research this morning that he found interesting. Let's bring Hunter in to talk about it. And Hunter, welcome. It's not your note is buy this and sell that, although you've got ratings, underperform, outperform, peer perform, whatever. It's more about this loan, this grant program that is part of sort of the bailout of the airlines, the fight over pay rates and dilution of shareholders. In a very basic way, what's the conclusion for our audience? Are some airlines more investable than others because of what's happening behind the scenes? Yeah. Uh, good afternoon, by the way. How are you guys? Um, I, I, would, I would say that's always the case. But in terms of what's going on here with the government, the word bailout's been thrown around a lot. But... Um, it's not really a bailout because there, there's going to be a price for this. And, and the real debate here that people are trying to understand both in and out of the industry is, is, is what the Treasury wants from the airlines in exchange for this $25 billion for passenger airlines because the law was passed with a lot of – with some ambiguous language in there around appropriate compensation. And right now it seems to be that Secretary Mnuchin is the sole decider, maybe with, in consult with some of his other uh, Trump's cabinet members, about what that means. That could be warrants, it could be notes, it could be stock options, it could be an equity position. No one really knows at this point, and I think currently negotiating with Treasury right now. Yeah, so the idea being, I guess, Hunter, that you, know, you take a certain amount of executive pay or a certain amount of uh, grants, but a lot of these market caps have been wiped out. I mean, Delta's held up pretty well, as your note notes. American Airlines have been hit, so it's gonna, they're going to have all these. If they take the same amount of money... They're going to have wildly different levels of dilution based on the remaining size of these airlines. How does that impact how we should think about investing in airlines? And uh, you may not go there, but I'm going to ask you which airline stocks won't exist in six months or a year. Yeah, no, sure. That's a fair question. Um, I think in terms of the dilution, I mean, that's what's being debated. So, for example, in our note, we talked about Delta. And American both take five billion dollars. The number might be plus or minus a couple hundred million, or maybe even a billion. That's that's not the point. If they both take five billion dollars, well, look, American's got a five billion dollar market cap. Delta's got an eighteen billion dollar market cap. It wouldn't be fair to just dilute them both by fifteen percent. Um, but also, on the same note, if you want to dilute them by the amount of the grant of five billion dollars, you're telling me that American CEO is supposed to go back to his board, to shareholders, and propose that a one hundred percent dilutive event or ninety three percent dilutive event, whatever the math is, is is somehow good for them 
uh, the answer is no, that, that's not right. So that, that's not what it's going to be. That's an unrealistic scenario. And at this point, it, it's about whether or not Mnuchin is willing to sort of say, hey, it's still a fair deal for me because there's a tax angle attached to this, or I can only get paid, say, eight on eight $900 million on a $5 billion grant. He's got to take that back to his Republican base and say that that's a fair deal. And, and that's where things get real hairy. In, in terms of, you know, which airlines exist in six months or now, I mean, look, a lot of it depends on, on the recovery. I think the cash that they get, they're going to burn through it in about four months. Uh, the, the level of cash burn is going to increase for every airline in April. Um, and there's some, some airlines that might not make it through. If this thing prolongs into next year, yeah, there's definitely going to be some airlines that don't make it through. Hundred. It's Karen. Let me ask you a question. Do you think, do each airline, do they have to take the same kind of deal? Could Delta take a senior debt deal and American take an equity deal that would be more dilutive for them? Or does it, does it have to be the same structure for everyone? Uh, all we know is that it's appropriate compensation. Uh, we don't know if the deal is going to be the same. Uh, I do believe that airlines are being represented uh, um, by a single entity. Uh, I think they're in general consensus as to what these, uh, these the compensation should look like. I think the level of dilution is going to be different. I don't think the instruments are going to be different. They may. They may. But I think if, if the terms are too onerous or the airlines feel the dilution is too heavy or whatever, or their hands are too tied, they're going to probably reject it and walk away from it. So you may see a divide uh, occur between the airlines, who I think appear at this point to be pretty aligned. But, you know, when, when the, the devil's in the details, like they say, with these types of things, and if the dilution is too yeah. much or, or they don't like the instruments, they're going to, one or two of them may walk. Hey, Hunter, let me, before we let you go, I want to ask you one question based on what you previously said. Is it theoretically possible um, for some airlines to take a few billion dollars in taxpayer money and then still go bust? Yeah, absolutely. Look, this is a temporary solution. You know, the government made available five, $25 billion in grants, and they have another $25 billion in, guarantee, in loan guarantees above and beyond that. American has already said they're going to take $12 billion from the government, or they may, I suppose they said. You know, that's $6 billion in grants, roughly, another $6 billion of loans. And I think that can probably get them through the end of the year. But if demand does not recover by 21, American will probably have burned through that cash. And they're going to be in a difficult position. So, and they're not the only ones, by the way. Uh, it's just they're the ones that said $12 billion. So they need demand to recover. You can't survive with 75% revenue down, as we have in our models for the second quarter, probably yeah. you know, down 50-some-odd percent after that in the third quarter. It, you just can't survive. The level of cash burn is too deep. It's truly amazing. Hunter Kay of, of Wolf Research. Hunter, thank you very much. Tough times there for everybody in that industry. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, as we're all trying to learn to work remotely or from home, and as I learned the hard way last night, if you watched, you need to have fast, reliable connection. Everybody's talking about 5G. Where are we in that process, and how much do we have to worry about connectivity when we all need it so badly? A company, a small-cap company, who's on the front lines of that, probably a new name for you, their CEO, coming up next. Oh, welcome back. Well, like, like us here at CNBC, is everybody out there is trying to work from home, stay connected with high-speed, reliable access. So many companies out there are on the front lines of making sure that happens. One of those companies you may never have heard about is called Insego, San Diego-based company formerly known as Novatel Wireless. 
and the CEO and Chairman Dan Mondor joining us now here on CNBC. Dan, I'm about to blast through this because we are expected to get to that White House press conference. You guys do 5G, 4G. You invented the mobile hotspot. Super in demand right now. If somebody wanted to buy one, would they be able to? Well, there's, uh, there is unprecedented demand. I will say this, uh, Brian, unprecedented and worldwide. So we've seen demand levels uh, three times and in growing from our normal levels. So um, Verizon, um, Sprint, T-Mobile, we also sell a device to uh, AT&T to connect laptops to the wireless networks. Um, we are working around the clock, uh, increasing production lines, shifts and we're responding to the demand so we're ramping up and we expect to catch up soon and how long do you expect that massive demand spike to last is this kind of a what you buy it once and then you have it for a couple of years or are you seeing rolling increases rolling increases it started um, with u.s carriers earlier this month and now in the last week or so we're starting to see demand come from international mobile operators um and I think a couple of things. I think uh, the whole pattern of how we work in school is, is changed. Um, I use the word surge uh, rather than spike. I don't think it's going to return from all the conversations we're having to the prior levels. I think it's going to plateau at a new higher level, um, basically through the discovery of, uh, of working and schooling from home. And also bandwidth, yeah. huge demand on capacity. So. It's really spurring 5G. We have a 5G device hotspot we launched last July, and the demand is, is uh, surging for that as well as our 4G. Well, and that's so many of our viewers right now, they, they work on Wall Street, Dan. They've got all these, they've got, as they say, fat pipes. I mean, they've got a lot of data coming in, whether or not they're terminals for trading. They need the bandwidth. Your supply chain, is it safe, is it secure, and is it functioning? And do you... Do you are you pretty much assured that we will have the bandwidth we need if this goes on for a couple more months, God forbid? Yeah, I, the, I think the carriers, the operators, you've seen the statistics, Verizon up 75%, I think AT&T, Wi-Fi calling up 70-plus percent. We're seeing the same thing in Europe, Vodafone. But, yeah, we serve those markets. We make, uh, we make our products for the financial sector, uh, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, our our customers use the device, Chase, City, and then as well as Department of Defense, Homeland Security. So it isn't just enough to have the device. It has to be very secure. And there was a, actually a, wife, a uh, FBI news alert uh, about a week ago that talked about the, uh, the nature of vulnerability of just regular home Wi-Fi. So you need performance, you need connectivity, you need security. Dan Mondor, Chairman and CEO of Insego Corp. Dan, we appreciate your time and all the work your employees are doing because we need to stay connected. Dan, you and your team be well. Thank you very much. All right, let's go now to the White House press briefing. Ambassador Deborah Burks is speaking. Let's listen. Doctor, respiratory therapist, pharmacist, and laboratory technician that's working together to stem this tide of unrelenting sick people coming to their doors. No one has been turned away. No one who has needed ventilation has not received ventilation. But you can see how stressful it is for each of them. So I know it's stressful to follow the guidelines, but it is more stressful and more difficult to the soldiers on the front line. As we started and we will end with its communities that will do this, there's no magic bullet. 
There's no magic vaccine or therapy. It's just behaviors. Each of our behaviors translating into something that changes the course of this viral pandemic over the next 30 days. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Burks, Mr. President, Mr. Vice President. So what Dr. Burks has really said very simply is that there are really two dynamic forces that are opposing each other here. As I've mentioned several times in our briefings, the virus, if left to its own devices, will do that dark curve that Dr. Burks showed you. The other dynamic force is what we are doing, what we're trying to do, and what we will do in the form of mitigation. Now, these are very revealing bits of data because you saw what happened in Italy, where you make the turn around the curve and you go. That doesn't happen all at once. It's a stepwise fashion. And if I explain the steps, which I will, you'll see why we are really convinced that mitigation is going to be doing the trick for us. Because what you have is you have an increase in new cases at a certain rate. When the increase in new cases begin to level off, the secondary effect is less hospitalizations, the next effect is less intensive care, and the next effect is less deaths. The deaths and the intensive care and the hospitalization always lag behind that early indication that there are less new cases per day, the way we saw in Italy, and the way we're likely seeing, I don't want to jump the gun on it, we're seeing little inklings of this right now in New York. So what we're going to see, and that's we've got to brace ourselves, in the next several days to a week or so, we're going to continue to see things go up. We cannot be discouraged by that because the mitigation is actually working and will work. The slide that Dr. Burke showed where you saw New York and New Jersey and then the cluster of other areas, our goal, which I believe we can accomplish, is to get the hotspot places, the New Yorks, the New Jersey, and help them to get around that curve, but as importantly, to prevent those clusters of areas that have not yet gone to that spike, to prevent them from getting that spike. And the answer to that is mitigation. Now, the 15 days that we had of mitigation clearly have had an effect, although it's tough to quantitate it because of those two opposing forces. But the reason why we feel so strongly about the necessity of the additional 30 days is that now is the time, whenever you're having an effect, not to take your foot off the accelerator and on the brake, but to just press it down on the accelerator. And that's what I hope and I know that we can do over the next 30 days. And as I said the other day and on one of the, one of the interviews, we are a very strong and resilient nation. If you look at our history, we've been through some terrible ordeals. This is tough. People are suffering. People are dying. It's inconvenient from a societal standpoint, from an economic standpoint, to go through this. But this is going to be the answer to our problems. So let's all pull together and make sure, as we look forward to the next 30 days, we do it with all the intensity and force that we can. Thank you. 
All right, that was, of course, really, that was the voice of the nation right now. From the health perspective, Dr. Anthony Fauci saying that we will get through this, trying to leave some of these grim statistics with at least a little optimism there. The president earlier saying that it will be a very, very difficult two weeks for the country as cases in so many places like here and maybe where you are, everybody, are expected to peak. All right, let's get back to what we do here at CNBC, guys, and, uh, and go through... Uh, the second quarter, obviously a first quarter to forget. Chris Verone, we got about two minutes left on the show. What are you looking for from the second quarter? What should we be doing? Listen, I think the leaders are still the leaders here. Semis have been a beast. Uh, biotech acts just fantastic. I think we need to fight the temptation of buying the laggards. You don't want Uncle Sam as a shareholder. That's a problem with airlines. It's a problem with consumer. We saw that in the last uh, 08, 09 time period when the banks and Fannie and Freddie and the autos got government as a shareholder, they were never returning as leaders. I think that's important here. All right, Karen, it's, it's sort of a semi-final trades, if you will, a little bit of a longer version. Let's call it trades for the quarter, trades for the rest of the year, just ideas and thoughts. What are you looking at? Well, I mean, normally we get to the beginning of a new quarter and we look forward to hearing earnings. And I do absolutely want to hear what companies have to say and no more so than than the banks. They're right in the heart of the storm, not uh, in their business, but helping other businesses. So I want to hear what they have to say. But I mean, fundamental earning analysis doesn't really matter anymore. So to me, I, I you know, if we trade down again, if we do test the lows, I will be out there buying before it hits the low for sure, because I never, never buy at the low. Um, but I, there, there are companies that absolutely will survive and thrive. So I'm looking for good balance sheets. I like tech as well. And, uh, you know, I like names like Starbucks that I talked about before. And then obviously looking at, does, are we able to flatten the curve? And is there any treatment that works? Those are the, those are the most important well, data points to me this quarter. They really are. Uh, Tim Seymour, a great and wise man named Guy Adami, says that every day we get through this is one step closer to getting out of it. Uh, I think everybody's happy to see the first quarter go away. What are you looking for for the second quarter? Well, I think over the next couple of quarters, where there's three to five hundred billion dollars of pension, uh, you know, allocation money to go back into the equity market. Just to be clear, um, I am very worried about the triple B credit curve, where thirty to forty percent of this could get downgraded, and that could overwhelm high yield. But um, I'm constructive here. All right, constructive there. And Guy Adami, what do you think? What's going to happen? Real quick, I know, you know, I think banks are interesting. You know, you, again, I don't think the worst is over. I can't say we're going to make a new law. I have no idea. But what I'll say is, you know, you have an opportunity at a J.P. Morgan, for example, at levels that price the book we haven't seen in quite a long time, Brian. Everybody, it was a pleasure to have you on CNBC's continued coverage and Fast Money. Thank you to Chris, to Karen, to Tim, to Guy. We're going to see you tomorrow night. Dow down 410, worst first quarter ever. Jim Kramer, you need to hear from him. He picks it up now on Bad Money. We'll see you tomorrow.